Hello, and welcome to MadeCast. This is Edmonton's design podcast, proudly produced by MADE, Edmonton's not-for-profit design society. Today, we acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional lands of First Nations and Métis peoples. This podcast series is brought to you by Dialogue. Dialogue's integrated team of architects, landscape architects, interior designers, and engineers have meaningfully improved communities in Edmonton for over 60 years. My name is Cody Johnston, and I'm here with my co-host, Stephanie Pollock. This week, we are celebrating Tiffany Shaw College. Tiffany was absolutely inspiring. I mean, she's a mother of two, juggling being an artist and an architect and a facility curator. She got a fine arts degree from the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. She ended up getting her master's degree at SciArc in, in Southern California. We get into that a lot today. She's the only Métis architect in Alberta, as far as we can find. She's an architect right now at Manask Isaac. She's the curator at Ochichiwan Indigenous Art Gallery in the Quarters District. And she's an artist with works that have been displayed in the River Park 11, the Edmonton Indigenous Art Park, amongst other locations. Yeah, we had a great conversation. And as you mentioned, there are so many creative projects that Tiffany's been involved with, but we were able to discuss some of her architectural projects and a little bit about her Métis background. What I really liked is that she shared with us her view into Métis culture and built space. With her project Pehonan in Edmonton's Indigenous Art Park, she shares with us what she created and exploring heritage through architecture. The other project we discuss is Métis Crossing, and with that project, we talk about Métis symbolism and architectural details. This episode was sponsored by Hodgson's Self Evans Architects, Rockcliffe Pure Shiloh Chroman Architects, HCMA Architecture and Design, and as well by GEC Architecture. So. A huge, huge thank you to each of those architecture firms for helping us stay alive and supporting our cause for elevating the design discourse in the city. Please sit back and enjoy our conversation with Tiffany. All right. My name's Cody and I'm joined with Stephanie from Made. We're really excited to have you here. Thanks for thanks for making the time. Yeah, thanks for um, asking me. Yeah, a bit crazy going on right now with the whole world, but uh, glad that we can still have these somewhat normal discussions. So I guess you're not uh, exactly one thing specifically, as most people are, but I don't just want to pigeonhole you as architect or intern architect or whatever we're allowed to say. Oh, I'm actually, artist. I'm, a, I'm an architect now, so I'm registered as an architect. Hey, good. Awesome. Congrats on that. Thank you. So why did you go this path? I guess I'll start off with kind of a, a, a lobbing question of, of why architecture, art, yeah. why this path? Uh, well, I've always wanted to be an architect and an artist and also a filmmaker, actually. Those are sort of the three things I always wanted to be when I was very little. Um, my mother 
she, when we were driving in St. Albert, when I was like four or five, she pointed out um, Douglas Cardinal's uh, St. Albert Place to me. And she told me that our cousin had had built that um, because she she thought we were related to Douglas Cardinal. We're not actually related to Douglas Cardinal, <laughs> but um, I grew up thinking that we were related. I mean, it's, it's sort of an indigenous thing to think a lot of people are related and um, there was a cardinal family that looked after my great-grandmother, so it's, it wasn't a far reach. Um, but I don't think, in fact, we are related. And um, But when I had seen that building at that age, it was quite impressive. And I sort of grew up thinking that that was within our family and our capability, and so I knew that's what I wanted to do growing up when I was little. And um, when I was older... Like in high school, you needed to have physics as a requirement for architecture, and I was not actually that good at the sciences. Um, and so I started to stray from that because I thought maybe you had to be super smart, and I was never very great at, at those kinds of things in school. So art was a lot more natural to me, so I just wanted to do my fine arts. But then, um, so I went to Grant McEwen for a two-year program for the art program there, which was wonderful, and then I went to... NASCAD to finish my degree in Halifax uh, for my BFA and then I came back and I got married to my husband who always lived here and I started working at this really um, sweet gallery called Scott Gallery working for Marianne Scott um, and I did love working there but what happened was I started to get a little depressed um, because I just sort of saw like eventually I would take on the gallery and then I would get married and then I would have, or I was already married. I would have children and then I would die. <laughs> it got like, I just sort of saw this. Yeah, <laughs> it was just kind of silly. Um, but I think it meant that I was looking for other things. And um, I was talking with a high school friend, Michael Dubb, about it. And because he has a architecture degree, and he was saying that you actually don't have to be so super smart to go into architecture school, which I learned is actually correct. And uh, so then I went and applied to go to school. And um, that's when things started to really click was not in school. School was really wonderful, but you can see my cat in the background here. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, she's just rubbing up against the computer here. Um, but I was just really loved seeing people sketch while talking like you know when you go to school you would get in trouble for sketching um but everyone was like able to think and process in different ways and so it really clicked when i started going to grad school and then when i moved back because i went to grad school in los angeles actually shifraz recommended that i go there um and that was a really good suggestion and when i came back it was very intense as you know working in architecture you have to kind of only do architecture because there's just so much to do but then when I had my first child Jasper I was able to take a residency during that maternity leave at the Banff Center and sort of marry those two worlds together where I went back into my art practice to explore it as a dedicated time but they have like laser cutters and 3d printers and that's really um where I love to work within my architecture and art practice is with analog and digital technologies, marrying them together. And then, um, so yeah, that's how I got here. And I'm also a curator of um, uh, 
of various capacities. One's within a collective called Otetsu One Contemporary Art Collective. And we just opened up an art center um, just east of downtown in the area called The Quarters or Boyle Street. And um, that is a really wonderful place where we really advocate for contemporary indigenous art uh, 24 hours, 20, uh, 365 days a year. And uh, that is really just about conversation. It's really about uplifting the indigenous art community that has a very long history here. And so that's very rewarding work too. You were just describing Ochichiwan. Yeah, and I didn't, it, I didn't, oh, well, everyone says it a little bit differently, but I say Otitsuwan. Otitsuwan. Okay. Yeah, but lots of people say it different ways, and that's how you learn language. So I'm also a curator with Otitsuwan Contemporary Art Collective. And what we really try to advocate for is for contemporary Indigenous art in the city, but also for the province more broadly as well. And there are not very many Indigenous art centers, so it's a real privilege and an honor to. Uh, be working on this uh, so that there's a space for uh, the long history of Indigenous artists to continue to thrive in this location. Yeah, isn't, um, speaking of Otsitsiwan, isn't it the, like the second or the first, maybe in Western Canada, contemporary Indigenous art gallery? Um, I haven't done like an extensive history about, because there might be some galleries that have opened that I might not have known but currently we're one of the one of the major art centers right now. Um, there's various other types of spaces like the Bush Gallery, which is more of a, um, a temporary space. It's held out in the bush, for example. Um, and that's, that's out here, um, that's out west. And there are other collectives starting to pop up that are indigenous as well. Um, but I would say that I think there are four other places in Canada for this kind of conversation that you can go to that are dedicated towards indigenous art. So it's rare and it's an honor. So. Right. I think it is like a really a big deal. I just don't want to say that we're the only ones out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll do, we'll do a fact checking on our end just to yeah. so we can, so we can <laughs> pump it up or not. Yeah. You briefly mentioned going to school in California. That was Cyarch, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. How was that experience? That's kind of a wild school. So how was that? Yeah. Uh, so I got into Dalhousie and I got into Cyarch um, to consider, but I had already lived in Halifax. Uh, so they offered to fly me out to take a look at the school. And um, when I went to Los Angeles, it just like really clicked. It was just so exciting to think about being there. But because I have a fine art background, what really drew me to the program was that they had that sort of art capacity or that real marriage between art and design it was really more of a maker space so it even though I didn't still really know what architecture was um it just like made sense to be there it was just very exciting and I really loved their process that they continued uh during the course of my stay and also what they continue to do which is really about disrupting spaces uh through uh, design interventions or through art interventions. Like they really don't limit you in, in the capability of the visual culture. And so it was just exciting to be around all of these different types of processes around rendering, around making. Um, in the last semester, I was in the robot lab, which was in its infancy at the time. They had just opened up the robot program. And I'm not actually great at robotics, 
but it was really interesting to see like all how these different programs and languages come together to create new narratives within architecture. Uh, so that was really fun. And it's also the, I think the key component for me, why I went to Los Angeles was to learn from the people writing the books rather than reading about them in the books. And that was really rewarding to sit in those spaces with people that I would have never met ordinarily. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I'll, I'll just make a quick comment and I'll let Stephanie ask a question. But I think SciArc has that really like breaking, breaking things down uh, trait. Like, I mean, like you say, it's like you're actually going there and meeting the people and you're kind of you're kind of really in it. So like just being in L.A. is in its own thing, uh, uh, very important. But I know a couple of other people that have graduated from there and they just completely and, and you can see it in the renderings and the style. It's very much like we're not thinking about architecture as traditional architecture. We're thinking differently. And I know um, uh, Ryan Skavnicki, he's like a theorist and he just basically does architecture memes and he came from there. And now there's like an architecture meme world, you know, and it's like and it's making theory accessible. Like it's 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 like it's not something that you would ever think of, but it's like these ideas come out of SciArc or whatever. And it's like it's, it's not architecture, but it's very much discussing architecture and challenging it. So. Well, I think I think that's what's really wonderful about architecture just as a profession is that you can really find a place for yourself in any, any, you just have to kind of look for it. Um, so like I applied to MIT, I applied to Harvard and all that, but none of those would have actually been good for me. Like looking back, SciArc really was the right program for the kinds of skill sets that I was looking to develop. And, um, you just, when you're so young, you don't really know that there are so many degrees of differences. And so it's that really kind of closed community that it can be a bit hard to access. So I think what you're saying is really great. Like these architecture memes, like really open up the space. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure about you stuff, but for what interior design is, but I think it's like really similar where you just really don't know what you don't know until you start to experience it. Yeah. And I think too, what's hard about, like, I won't speak to architecture because I'm a designer, but what is shown on TV and that is a, not reflective of what we actually do and and so yeah I think there's just this perceived image of what it is and then I went to school and my you know my idea was this and then it got like way bigger which is amazing but yeah I guess that's what I would say about that I I just want to circle back to you said you had spoken to your friend was that the tipping point for you to realize that architecture was a possibility and a way for you to like open up the lens and marry, like to really use your art for impact? I guess I had always wanted to be an architect. Like it was just something that I always wanted to do. And I think, yeah, I, for some reason, I really remember that moment when Michael had told me that it wasn't as difficult as I had built it up to be. I had sort of put it on this pedestal that I couldn't access this space because of these this physics mark uh, that I was holding me back. And I didn't have anyone in my life to really navigate that education. Um, like I was the only one who actually went to school at that time in my family um, for higher education. Um, like my aunt, she went to university when she was older, but I was sort of the only one. And knowing, I think I just, he just sort of gave me permission. And I think, I guess I was looking for permission or something. I'm not sure. Um, 
I must have been the tipping point. I think I, I was actually getting depressed. I was just so sad. I didn't know why I was sad. I didn't know what was going on. And I think he just kind of was there at the right time to tell me what I really needed to hear. And I guess it's your circles of influence. So I didn't have a lot of friends that were looking for these professional degrees at the time, even though I was working in the arts, you just start, you, you become a curator or you work at a gallery. Yeah. Um, so I didn't have a lot of friends that were going to law school or were going to these other higher professions. So I didn't know that this was something I could do. So when I announced to my family and friends, I was going to go back to school and do my master's. A lot of people were like scared for me. People actually were telling me not to go because it was an expensive venture. And um, my parents never said no, but it's just that that wasn't their expertise. And so I think for younger people, you have to really think about what accessibility is. And luckily the dollar was at par. And so I was able to afford this adventure um, through a series of grants and some very, um, long-term Canada student loans that I still have not gotten rid of. Um, but if I went today, I would never be able to go because it is like the dollar is not at par and the tuition has like increased in infinitely since I've been there. So it, it is really interesting. I don't really think I understood how inaccessible this space was and I just sort of yeah. lucked out. Um, but it really is a barrier for a lot of people. Thank you for sharing your vulnerability and yeah, some, some, I mean, sometimes do we put these barriers on ourselves just in our mind and sometimes that's, you're, you're convincing yourself is the hardest person to convince. Yeah. I, I, I love that you had brought that up. So thank you for asking. Amazing. Yeah. I was just thinking about, you know, like the things that you, that you brought from, from Edmonton growing up and, and having a, having a fine arts background and then going over to SciArc and then. You know, making the transition, uh, sort of staying staying wild in a sense of like in, in architecture, relevance to architecture. Like you did art, and then you went to SciArc, and you and you never did like the I'm gonna go to ETH and learn how to draw uh, technical detail, and you, you didn't go that way, right? So, do you find like a style or like some sort of influence from your past in your architecture? I mean, how have you kept that? Uh, energy alive. Yeah, well, a lot of all of the work that I do is mostly around my family or my home. Well, like regionalism is really important to me. Um, and so, when I was moved, when I was living in LA, I would only be thinking about Edmonton, and I really missed like the seasonality changes there. It's like always just kind of warm, and it actually gets greener in the winter time because it's not as hot. Just and so it gets really strange. And um, so a lot of my practice is always around developing the things that are around us. And so I think that's always been a current in all of the work that I do. And architecture and art are just the vehicle for the conversations that I'm looking to have. Um, I think also I have uh, had always admired these larger cities because there's so much confluence there. There's lots of grand ideas. There's also a lot of money. So these things get a lot bigger. And so being able to really experience that to understand if that's what I wanted it to be, if I wanted my life to be like that, I had the actual opportunity. And I didn't know if I wanted to stay in those places, but I wanted the chance to try. 
And what I learned is that when I was in Los Angeles, I actually felt like I had no community. And I felt really actually deprived of what I loved best, which was my family. And even though they really drive me crazy, they are a real driver for ideas that I'm looking through. So my thesis, for example, at grad school was about, um, it was, I was growing crystals around um, buildings because I was looking at irregular geometry. And so I would like grow them for real. And then I would also uh, model them as well and to see how they propagate surfaces. But really it was like, I missed the snow. I like <laughs> missed that transformation. Um, but in architecture, you have to really remove yourself. You have to pretend like you're not emotionally invested in a certain way and, and have a lot of rhetoric around it. And so I had to say it was really about distributing a, uh, an aggregated surface um, uh, that was an analog typology. You know, I had to kind of fulfill all these different things. And, it, and I think that's where I like the art practice because I can make it a lot more personal because it is mostly personal. And then I can navigate the worlds between. So... Yeah, I, even though I go to other places, it helps me understand more about what is so amazing about why we live here and what we do. Yeah. So you would say more so than like, say, a, a style of drawing or a style of rendering through all your history, there's almost a style of thought and of like, what kind of dialogue am I going to have? And, and the, all my experience have, have trained me to, to think certain ways and to, to recognize regionalism and, and vernacular and those kinds of words yeah and yes that's a very good that's a good way to summarize it um but i also come from a family of makers um so my grandma my great-grandmother was a moccasin maker um my grandmother she worked in carpentry for a period of time my mother she would like knit and sew and embroidery um she and then in turn she would always give me all these little different craft kits when i was growing up and so that's why i liked going to grad school with this really great um, model space was that I could make all these really beautiful models. I could implement um, embroidery or crochet or um, knitting into that practice as well. So it was like kind of taking the lineage of my family and then moving it through another kind of channel. And one thing that I always really work, work on in my work through art and architecture is creating indigenous visibility because those spaces don't really feel like they're made for my family. Like, for example, when I went to Fort McMurray to visit my great uncle, who was very ill um, at the Fort McMurray Hospital, it's a really cold building. It's just it's almost like the Misericordia, kind of really sterile um, and not a lot of ornamentation to the building. And there's just this one like medicine wheel before you get onto the elevator and it, that was the only thing and I know that there's a lot of indigenous people there like my family grew up there and not not myself I'm not from Fort McMurray I was born in Calgary and raised in Edmonton but all of my family go there and where my mother was born there and my grandmother and my great-grandmother but it didn't really feel like that was for my family even though I know they frequented that building and so when seeing seeing places like Douglas Cardinal's buildings is just such a different expression and so I've been, once it clicked for me that I could talk about my indigenous identity because before a very long time I couldn't, not in a safe space. 
um, I was really able to ramp up what I really wanted to see. I was able to understand before I was sort of like wandering aimlessly. I was just sort of learning about great stuff and I was duplicating what I was learning from the, from the books or from school, which was mostly a European identity. Um, but once I was able to understand that it was safe to talk about being indigenous, um, that was when it really kind of shifted the dialogue for me. And I didn't know that I had that side of myself until I actually went to Los Angeles because um, I wasn't able to understand what was so unique about my perspective while living here until I moved away, realizing that I did have a voice and I did have an experience that was unique. Um, so that was kind of interesting too. Oh, wow. So I looked at your work and I if you don't mind sharing, I did watch the video, but the waiting place, how do I pronounce that? Oh, Pehanan. Yeah. There's one, one quote I have, so I'll just repeat. It's your own words, but I'll repeat it to you. And then if you wouldn't mind sharing um, the project with us, you say, when you're far back in history, you don't have the voice. When you're in the future, you have the voice, but you don't have the vista. Well, thank you for bringing up that quote. Um, what I had designed at the Indigenous Art Park was a place for people to gather specifically. Um, it is an area that people come to for have and have come to for long periods of time, and I assume will continue to because of where it's located in the city and where. But there was several artifacts that were found in this location before they had done the construction of this park and during. And they, when they were constructing it, the parking lot, they had found these arrowhead points from that were like one of the oldest arrowhead points in um, Alberta's history. And one was that was made out of um, the riverbed rock in the area. And then they also found one made out of another material that was found a little farther away just to kind of talk about the length of travel that people would take and the the route of exchange that people had in this area. And I really want to talk about that history in this work, but I also want to talk about our future and our present. And so what was really nice about that location is it has this beautiful vista of the downtown um, and the water. And so I knew that when you're standing at the very top of the space, you could have this whole view but I knew that the conversation would likely happen in the center of that amphitheater space that I had created, which is down further below. And it just made me think about when you are talking to your grandmother or grandfather, they have this perspective that's just so much more richer than your own, but they're not as active usually in the community. Or when you're accessing your ancestors farther back in history through books or through prayer or or very others methods, they don't have the voice either in a certain way where they can't be as active as you are. But when you're down at the lower step, a part of the conversation in that circle that's at the base of the seat, you don't have the perspective anymore. You're lower down into the landscape. You're not seeing the city as high up. And so you have to be careful about how you use your voice, knowing that it can affect people beyond and knowing that you can't actually see the future as far as you want to. 
So it's it's about different perspectives and it's also about being respectful and responsible with your voice, where and how you use it. Yeah, the the so it's it's the Indigenous Art Park River Lot number eleven. How do you pronounce um, the park? Oh, Inu, is I think people call it Inu, Inu River Inu. Lot eleven. Inu, yeah. Okay, well people should go to Inu, yeah, River Lot eleven, and check out the check out the art there. What, the what what's interesting about that name though is that so they had a a really wonderful committee where they had a whole host of people from different stakeholder groups. And so the Inu is the Cree word, um, which was named by Jerry Saddleback, um, the elder that they had engaged there. But then they also recognized the Métis history, which is River Lot 11. And those histories aren't always understood to be defined different. And so as a Métis artist and architect, that to me was really symbolic that they are understanding both histories. My, my family, they speak Cree or they spoke Cree. They don't speak Cree anymore. Um, the, they were Métis, but they also spoke Cree, but that doesn't mean that those are the same things. And so it's nice to have that um, discussion over what these, this discussion to make sure that these different layered histories kind of come together rather than only privileging one over the other. All right. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard of that before, so thanks for that. Yeah, well, actually, most, most people don't know the difference actually between <clears throat> First Nations and Métis people. And um, I, I'm not really sure why it... I, I don't know why that is so uncommon, um, but I had to. I have had to learn a lot about my Métis history through books, actually, because it's just not talked about that often. A, because it wasn't really a lot encouraged. It's not that I didn't know I was Métis, but it's not encouraged to know what the real differences are, and people don't really celebrate them often outside of your own family. And so a lot of my work is dedicated towards Métis identity. So I work with Métis Crossing um, they're a client of, um, of ours at Manask Isaac where I work. And we really look at craft and construction, which is a Métis lineage of ours, um, such as like the dovetail, like joint, for example, that's a, in a lot of the work that I do in my art and in my architecture to explore how people have created spaces before and bring them into contemporary practice. Nice. So that's, uh, Awesome little, because we do want to definitely talk about that project. Um, but I did want to ask one final question about the piece uh, in the in the art park. It's to me, it's the most architectural piece there. So I guess were you were you conscious of that going in, or was that just like happenstance because you're an architect and you think spatially like that? Or how I did think that come out? well, that oh, that's a really a really nice question, and thanks for letting me know that you feel like it's architectural. That makes me feel very happy. I try, I try to privilege both worlds at the same time. And so I'm a little bit slower, I think, in my practice because I do both. Um, but when I create work, I try to make sure that this will work in the design community conversation and also in an artist, artistic practice community. Um, so I think I'm working more in a hybrid sense. Um, but I think that's why I love that I can do both of these things. My, my mind can sort of oscillate between them and craft is really where I marry those two worlds together like that dovetail like joint that I have on the second top step I have like that wood that looks like the fort era mm -hmm. and then I have that that dovetail joint like the co corner is such a big conversation in architecture and so I deal with the corner differently in four different ways you know I have the stone on the top step where I have that aggregated 
variated pattern. And so it's sort of like that continuous corner. And then I have the dovetail like joint that talks about um, different materiality and how it talks about expansion and contraction. And then on the third step, I have Corten steel, but I mirror the beading pattern by my great grandmother, which is something that is a little bit more current now. And then on the fourth step, the last one is a polished mirrored steel. And that is just mirroring um, the environment around you. And so it's just meant to sort of be more camouflaged within the environment. So it's just, you know, I, even though it is an art project, I still want to bring in these architectural conversations because there's lots of rhetoric around the corner, for example, like you could read so many essays and writings about it. So I, I was still trying to, to meet both worlds and that's what I always aim to do. Similar to Kinestana Park, which is just opened um, in the east side of Edmonton as well, or east side of downtown, I sort of use my great-grandmother's beading pattern, but I scale it up really big, like super graphic style from like the 60s and the 70s, which is part of like this design conversation, not so much of the art conversation. Um, and so it's like, how can I make these things work in more than one realm so that it's more accessible. I think that's really my work is like to make people feel safe um, and to privilege the indigenous voice first and then making sure that everyone else is comfortable enough to, to move that conversation forward. That's really the drivers for my work. Hmm. Is that the is that the one uh, near Otsutsiwan um, with the red the red ribbon thing? Yes. Okay, great. And it's actually interesting because they had come up with the concept that the Kinistana means we three in Cree. And, um, you know, I think they were trying to layer the histories of the Chinese community, the indigenous community, and also the city fabric as well. And so it was talking about this thread. And so they have this large red canopy. And when I applied for the project, I actually didn't win the art proposal, but my my proposal was so successful they developed they moved me into the architectural team so they have an artwork there and then the art is incorporated as part of the canopy and i thought about the artwork as a thread that sort of stitches that history together that comes in and out i also look look think about the fat the patterning as a type of erasure where the pattern comes in and out as well like the even though you can sort of take away or remove the culture from people perceivably it still has it still thrives and we're still here we're not um a forgotten people we are still here so that's kind of what that work is about and uh, the red i think was chosen to really be emblematic of the chinese community so it's kind of an interesting project i think what's great about um these piece that and this is more of an opinion than a question but it, they intertwine like place and history and people and I don't know that uh, maybe the general public always think of place as being you know an impactful place or that they you know a place represents something or people or an idea and yeah I just I just find your work is so layered and um, so impactful and so intentional. So, yeah, just thank you. But isn't that isn't that why we create though? Like totally, we create totally. places to make special. And I think, um, you know, I love every aspect of my job. Like, I've never really worked on a terrible job, even when I'm designing like parking lots. Um, <laughs> I'm still always fascinated by certain things, and how can we bring meaning? two things is always something that I'm 
that is why I went into design is to sort of find a greater meaning other than myself. So thank you for that comment. But I'm I'm assuming that what that's why we're all in this mm -hmm. profession, you know? Yeah, I, and I think it just sometimes it's we just need to remind ourselves of it. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, working with the Métis crossings and you with Manasque Isaac, I suppose, just completed a building there. And I think it's absolutely stunning from the pictures. I unfortunately have not been there in person yet. That's okay. It just opened. But I think if I can sneak around, I'm going to go check it out. Partly because I have a, a fascination for the environment and the world we live in and I care about it. And I'm glad you're using things like wood as a renewable resource, as, a, as an architectural piece, a structural element, like not just, uh, there, there's probably deeper meanings to it. I'll let you get into that. But I mean, there's, there's a sort of consciousness of our position in, in the world. And I appreciate that. And not only is it is it wood for sake of wood or, or whatever it might be, it's absolutely beautiful from what I can see. So I'll, I won't say any more and I'll, I'll let you describe it more more appropriately. So if you would lead us into the project. Well, I think what absolutely is um, something that we really try to use in our work in general at Manask Isaac. Um, you know, what's interesting about Manask Isaac is that you, you can see my cat. You can hear my cat. I'm sorry that she yeah. keeps. <laughs> I love the cat. She doesn't even like me, but only when I'm on Zoom is she here. So. <laughs> um, the thing about Manask Isaac is that they've always really talked about sustainability being a pillar of their um, work ethic. And, um, you know, I had never really thought of it as something that was the thing that you had to talk about a lot, because I thought that that should be inherent in your work. I thought being a good designer would just be to have sustainable practices. But I've realized now, um, after being in the industry for a little bit longer, people really just don't understand that conversation in the same way. They don't feel that they need to have more sustainable practices as part of their life and their work. Um, so that's what's nice about working with Manasque Isaac is that they have such a long-term history in that conversation. Um, so it's a good fit and alignment. Um, there is this indigenous idea about living lightly on the earth um, so that you're not taking more than you need. And so a lot of the sensibility that I try to bring to these projects, think about that. How do these materials wear over time? And what history are they telling the way that they, and in how they get worn? And wood is such a really wonderful expression to do that. We had actually found this one material called a koya, and it is actually pickled to have a longer lifespan. It's an acetylytic process. And so because it is difficult to use wood in exposed environments like ours, it's quite harsh if you don't have a lot of different coatings on them. Uh, but this vinegar that, uh, and if you smell it, it smells like vinegar actually once it's done its process. Um, helps it maintain a longevity longer. And so it has like a 50-year warranty unpainted, which is kind of a crazy thing to say. I'm still not quite sure I believe it, but that's what their warranty says. And so we were able to use that on the outside of the building so that it could maintain that cabin-like presence that I was trying to bring out from the history that's already there. Métis Crossing is just about an hour and a half northeast of the city, close to Smoky Lake. And... What's really cool about Métis history in Alberta is that it's a bit varied and 
different than most other provinces. There are settlements in the area, for example. There are eight of them currently right now. And Métis Crossing was one of the uh, historical settlements where they had um, quite a few Métis families living there, and it was divided to have river lots. Um, Edmonton also had river lots as well. Um, it's not something that gets talked a lot about. I There's still a few things that I don't know about river lots, but it is mostly specific to Métis history um, in Canada. And um, it's so that everyone can have access to the river, essentially. So there are these long, narrow plots. And um, Métis Nation of Alberta was able to secure this land back um, from uh, with the help of the government and also some motivation of the nation. And they wanted to d- develop this place as a place to learn about Métis people. And so there's the Alberta experience, but there's also the Canadian experience. So when they, um, Vivian Manask, who's my employer, um, who's one of the principals at Manask Isaac, she had a long-term history with Métis Nation of Alberta, which I did not know of. It, like all these things kind of come came together. And when they were starting to talk about um, creating a build that they had always wanted to do a, a gathering center on this space. They had actually done some designs, um, I think back in 2000, 2001 or 2005. Uh, and Shafraz was actually part of that project. Uh, it never went ahead because they didn't have the funding. So when I had been there, had the, everything had clicked and they needed um, a building to be developed and I was there. And so as the only like Métis architect in Alberta, it kind of worked out in my favor. But what was really fascinating is that they wanted to talk about ways to gather the community and this outdoor deck had come up from that conversation. Originally they wanted to have the building accommodate their annual general assembly, which comes together once a year and they have about 700 attendees at this point in time, but to create a gathering center in the middle, um, of away from these larger centers where people won't always be traveling. It didn't seem profitable to always have a space for 700 people all the time. And so there was the idea put out there to have a space outside for 350 people and inside for 350 people. So there's a space to kind of walk in between. And so this large deck, this large veranda was created out of that concept And it was really successful for a few different reasons. One is that it talks about that transition space from inside to outside in a Canadian climate. That's really key. You know, we have these vestibules that sort of temper our environment before we go inside or outside. Um, But also for Indigenous um, uh, ideology, that inside-outside space is really important because you always sort of need to have um, quick access to land-based activities. And so this kind of helped transition that in a more comfortable environment but it also we faced it south so that it takes in all of the sun's energy to warm up the building um but that south deck it's like either five degrees cooler when it's the hottest day or five degrees warmer on the coldest day because it sort of takes up all the sun's energy in different ways depending on the winter time so it's a really beautiful tempered space but then also a different typology that you don't really see uh, with a building. So it's kind of interesting in that way. And I guess, yeah, that's... yeah, sorry. One other thing about the building is that it's built kind of like a Métis cabin in a way. So we have the large great hall, there's a teaching classroom and there's the large deck, but they all have these like movable walls or large doors that 
fold open and so that these spaces can become one large space for say an annual general assembly or they can kind of close up into different compartments kind of like a cabin how it's one big room but then you kind of section off your kitchen or you section off your bedroom as you need it so that's another thing that we're trying to do yeah i think you know i think the the um that that porch is definitely like a a, a huge obviously a huge piece of it um and i and i, and I love that there's that sort of it's very, um, I don't know, practical as well. Like you mentioned, like it's a big overhang, so it cools it in the summertime and it heats it in the wintertime. And so it's super practical. And those are very simple architectural moves to do. And I think one of the, one of the things that I'm seeing, and I, I don't know, tell me if I'm completely making this up or this is intentional, but you have, you have a, a, a valley, a big valley, I think, in the center of the building. It's strong sectionally. And the wood in there uh, is strongly emblematic of the Métis flag. Yeah, is so, that yeah, total fluke or a total... No, no, it well, actually came apart. It came apart around organically. Um, I wanted to do an inverted roof with the hull. Um, I wanted to capture the water differently. And um, when we showed the inverted roof to the client, they liked the idea, but they said it wasn't. didn't feel traditional. It didn't... It didn't feel like a hall in that way. It was too contemporary. And so I was looking at ways to still keep that inverted roof, that V shape. And then I was looking at some precedents and I think what they were really asking for was like that A-frame shape of a hall. And so I was like, well, if I add um, some timber frames to make like a scissor truss, that's not a word, I'm calling it a scissor truss, uh, to make an X essentially, underneath they'll still feel that A-frame with the X of the beams, uh, but then the roof is still inverted. And we're this we came together, this idea all together with structural engineers with Vivian and Ask and um, mechanical engineer, because we we're also talking about how does the air flow through here. Yeah, there's a, you can see huge two two huge air ducts moving through the air. Yes, so. yeah. And actually there's a stack effect happening in there. So there's clear story up there. So the windows are operable. I always try to get the stack effect in all of my buildings if possible when it's more than one story. Um, so we were talking about all of that expression and it, the X just like appeared and it clicked <laughs> and, um, the X is part of the infinity sign, which is in the Métis flag. And it's also part of the Métis crossings, which is the Métis crossing logo is a part of the infinity sign as well. So it all just kind of like came together. Um, it wasn't on purpose. It wasn't like, where can I put that infinity sign in this building? just like kind of happened and what another thing that i had done was make sure that well we were able to get timber as the trusses uh, to hold the roof and um the columns holding up the roof are glue lamp and originally we wanted them to be timber as well but because it is so high and we had such a, a spacing between the columns it's a four meter spacing um in plan I didn't want the timber to touch the glue lamp. I thought it wouldn't look as good. So I separated them and I added steel connections that you could see that I, it's not me. Like we're working with a structural engineer. I'm just, this is the conversation we had. And I wanted to celebrate the technology of these materials. So when steel was being used as a property um, in the 1800s, people didn't believe that it would hold up the building because it was thinner than, than the mason masonry that was being used. And I wanted to kind of bring out that technology again because the... So even though the columns and the beams are heavy wood, 
this steel, I made it, I asked the structural engineer, which is Fastenep, and they did a beautiful job to make it as thin as possible, to make like a knife-like plate to um, between the two so that you have that separation between traditional and contemporary with the contemporary with the glue lamb and traditional with the timber. And that's always what my work is always trying to do is um, look at past, present, future. And materiality is a really great way to tell that story. Mm. And the thing about the Métis Nation is you have to have a place for your grandmother or your cookum or your gusham to be comfortable as well as your teenagers who don't want to be anywhere near you. And so by doing that, I'm tr we're trying to find language that would honor the deep past and the current present and the future and things like that to, to separate the materials and in, in, introduce new other materials as, as ways to do that. Oh, that's superb. I appreciate that instead of, uh, trying to, to do the old architect, pull the wool over your eyes. Yeah, we in, totally intended the Métis symbol in the roof dresses. You're honest about stumbling into it because that's what we do a lot of times. We stumble into symbolism when we realize what we've done when we're halfway through it or we're done it already, so. Well, th this is what I don't like about architecture is that it's there's it's so ego-based and I'm actually yeah. more collective. Uh, I'm more collective based. I, I actually don't have very good ideas. I'm not like the person who has <laughs> the best idea in the room. So I have to kind of like, bring other people in and then once we start to go on a tangent like i i love it when i work in a team where we don't know who came up with the idea exactly um but if everyone is holding that same idea we know that it's a strong one and that it'll be more greatly accepted i like why fight it with people if it's not going to work so actually it was a mistake where i always thought that the columns and the beams were going to be timber and it wasn't until further into the process um that i realized that the columns turned to glue lamb. The structural engineer just didn't explicitly tell me. Um, and so that was when I had to make a decision about how to treat those two materials coming together. And so we were able to come up with that idea of spacing them apart and using the metal to separate them. But it's really the building process. You feel like you have to have all of the answers. You feel like there's this genius that you have inside of you to like create something. And that for me is that process doesn't work that way for me. It's if it's almost too much pressure. And so if I just come together in a room with a bunch of creative, knowledgeable people, I'm sure that there's a way that we can find a really beautiful solution that makes more sense because more people have been a part of that process than the individual. But that's my process. Yeah. I like that. It's uh, We're going away with the ego and the architect as dictator, and I appreciate that. It's so old. And also just too male for me. I just like it's... It's just not, I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I guess you've mentioned it uh, a lot of times in passing. And I think you just mentioned it about, uh, you know, gender, uh, things like that. So so I guess we've talked a lot about it during during this conversation about being Métis. Uh, and then you touched on a little bit about being a woman. But you mentioned that you came uh, to realize that uh, I think it was like during your sire experience that there is a safe space now to talk about your heritage and who you are and those types of things. So in learning that, what have you seen in the world and in probably Edmonton specifically where society uh, hasn't adjusted the social norms or, or what society could do for social norms? Like how do you feel about being uh, an indigenous woman in a, uh, 
straight white male dominated society. Like, like I have all the privilege and I have no idea the challenges you, you, you and Stephanie have gone through quite frankly. So yeah, I guess would, what would, what would you like to talk about uh, in regards to that? Yeah. Thank you for the question. I appreciate that. Um, I mean, I'm married to a straight white male and so it's really fun to watch him reconcile what's going on. <laughs> um, yes. you know, it, he just thinks jobs should just like fall in his lap naturally. And I'm like, well, that's not how it happens for a lot of people. And so it's really fascinating to, to live in that environment, to see it um, and not experience it in the same way. I've had the great pleasure of always working with a lot of good female leaders um, or women who identify as female. And I've not been in a lot of um, um, my father owned a car dealership actually and uh, it was like the largest light truck uh, used um, vehicle sales center in Western Canada. And so there was a lot of machismo in that space. And I, I found it a really interesting environment to grow up in at a young age. Uh, so I think I learned agency at quite a young age on how to work with um, these men at this in these spaces. And my father has... Uh, I have five brothers and I'm the only uh, daughter growing up. I have other siblings, um, but I just didn't know them at the time. And that I have two other sisters and another brother from from my um, biological father. But I think just growing up in a male-dominated world, I just learned to navigate. I also have a very strong voice and a lot of opinions. And so I've not really felt a lot of barriers um because i have the voice but what happens is i end up getting really frustrated when i see a lot of people who are not able to advocate for themselves and then seeing how they don't get the opportunities so another thing that i have learned is that um i'm white presenting so people don't know that i'm indigenous um and um, they don't understand that this, the look that I have is a very Métis look. And so I have occupied a white space this entire time and understood the difficulties that my brother would face, who does look indigenous, more indigenous than I do, I guess, what people would perceive versus how I would get treated. And so I've grown up seeing that, that very specific treatment. And so I've always been really careful about those spaces knowing the privilege that I hold and that I have to share. I've also noticed that I will get more opportunities than other people because I look more white than other people who do not look white. Um, so I have to also be careful of to whether I really deserve to take up that space um, as opposed to other people who are facing the uh, larger barriers. So I think, how do I feel about being a woman? I think I really work in advocacy through my through my work. So, um, a lot of the projects I work with, um, work in, luckily I work with a lot of female designers and engineers It's actually quite remarkable. It's really wonderful. Like the Métis crossing team right now currently is all women, um, consultant team with the exception of, um, like the mechanical engineers, female, the landscape architect is female, the structural engineers, female, there's the structural lead is, is male. He's the only sort of misnomer. Um, uh, the interior designer is female. Um, the technicians are female. 
Um, so it's this really wonderful environment that works really well. Our specification writer is female. Um, and so I work in a lot of those environments and it's quite wonderful, but there are a lot of people that don't. And so I have to always recognize that that's not a space for people. And, uh, so what I really try to do is just make sure that I, um, recognize those privileges and also remind people about those privileges when I see it happening. And when I work with those consultants, for example, I really try to let them know the significance of the project that we're working on, who it's benefiting and why. When you work with a school project, everyone sort of always understands right away that the benefit is the children. It's really remarkable how people just understand that the future is really important. Um, but they don't always understand that um, on other projects. So when it has Indigenous um, attachments to it, I try to give a bit of understanding as to why it really makes a big difference. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, shining a light on all that for us. I'm glad it's. I'm glad. I'm glad people are talking about it more. Uh, I'm glad that people are. You know, straight white males are are made uncomfortable these days because you know what? Why not? We've, we're probably overdue for that. So. Well, I think. Um, you know, no one should be too comfortable, right? And uh, I think that is a bit of the issue that we're seeing right now is that people have been sitting in some seats for a little bit too long and not sharing at the table. And I think it's really, the table should be a place where everyone can eat. And that's, we know that that's not what's happening. Um, we can see the the difficulty. We just, you know, we saw that there are two Muslim attacks, two separate Muslim attacks that happened at Southgate Center this week. Um, people think that racism is a past thing. People think that racism doesn't exist in their circles. But what they're not realizing is that they are perpetuating the racism by not standing up and not saying anything. Like complicit, compl complacency and complicitness is a problem. And... Um, that whole conversation around defunding the police and black lives matter conversations that have happened this week and also, or this year, and also understanding that COVID-19 is affecting marginalized groups disproportionately is the biggest indicators that this world is still sort of geared towards one person sitting at the table over many. And so I think it's always, if you're always thinking about how can we make this more inclusive to try and think about who's at the table at the very first place. And then, if it is looking all very wonder bread, then maybe we should be thinking about um, how can we engage in relationships to make sure that there's a bit more deliciousness at the table rather than this processed, manufactured, um, overproduced idea. Because I think as Rem Coolhouse had talked about how, how some ideas are too refined and then they're not good in, at all. The best ideas are messy and don't make sense. And I think that's the way that I try to make my projects work is think if things are a little bit too messy, that's probably better than things that are too refined because then they're too consumable. So I think how can we make sure that there's more seats at the table and how can we make sure that these ideas are a little bit messy so that there's more room for error and trial so that we can move ideas forward. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing um, your perspective and thank you for your time and thank you for your energy for that question. Yeah, thanks for uh, asking. Um, we've talked a bit about your past. Uh, we've talked about personal uh, items. But what do you? What would you like to see? Because I would like to talk about the future. What would you like to see? You know, selfishly from Made, from a design advocacy group within the city. But what would you like to see 
if not in the design community per se, what do you think Edmonton should look like or could look like in the next 20 years? Do you have, do you have like an idea of like uh, a trajectory you'd like to see Edmonton's design community move? I would like to see more indigenous um, infrastructure because I think that there's a lot of um, ways that indigenous um, methodology works for a lot of people uh, where it's about a circle of governance or uh, a space for younger and older people together. Um, so I'd like to see spaces reflect that a little bit more rather than just for the median population. And I think I would really like to see more expression of outdoor spaces um, through winter and summer um, through sustainable practices, of course. Um, but I just visited that new pavilion in Horlack Park um, that has the, the fireplace outside. And it's quite wonderful to have shelter and see spaces that really lift up the out, outside realm and or the outdoor realm. And I think it would be really wonderful to see a really continue the integration of outdoor spaces for winter time so that people who are facing houselessness have more dignity in the spaces that they occupy. Um, like there was a, a gentleman who um, was warming himself up at the fireplace um, who I could tell probably was staying outside for a lot longer than I probably would want to. And not that I would want to, but I noticed that he probably didn't have a home. And I think if those spaces weren't there, he wouldn't have a place to warm up. And I think that we need to create more space so that all people can come together rather than the segmented um, spaces that we offer now. I just want a place where everyone can have comfortability rather than separating them. My friend had recently said, um, uh, Sean Z, who works with the Aya Collective, he had said that the city knows how to make great space for when when you want to make it. And um, I think that the city should just continually invest in for the marginalized groups, because then that means that there's equal access for all. So that's that's really where I think the focus should be, because then everyone benefits rather than just the small majority. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is it is like a I don't know if it's policy, but there's a sort of bureaucratic policy shift that kind of needs to take place and not being afraid to do those kinds of things. But I think it's also on the public to start to recognize uh, the need to remove the stigma around houseless people, for example. Like we look at Pekawiwin and it's like, uh, it was such a beautiful space, you know, and it was like, it was more effectively ran than a lot of city programs and it was volunteer based. So it's like, that's that's one of the beauties I think that, maybe you and I both share about Edmonton. It's like, there's something special about the community here in that we, we like totally aren't afraid to come together and we know when we need to come together. And yeah, it's just kind of a bummer to, to know that the energy is there and to see the city or, or not necessarily to point the finger at the city, but to see citizens and, and, you know, private developers and all these, all these people that are creating our built environment, sometimes dropping the ball. Well, I think uh, I really love what you said about community. That is a very good strength we have in this city that not everybody knows. Um, but I also love that we're a bit of a middle class city. So people don't really go, um, don't feel like things are out of reach within their realm. Like it's very easy to get access to counselors, for example, if you need to, or the mayor, if you really need to. Um, there's less powers of division. Um, they, they are there, 
but there's just more opportunity to be in the room to have a voice if you need to. And I don't know if everyone knows that, but this is what's really wonderful about living in Edmonton. So I appreciate what you said about community. It's it's a very good um, a good space to grow up in if you if you know how to if you understand it and can navigate it. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit early in the day to toast anything, <laughs> but I would uh, propose a toast when the time is right to uh, community and uh, yeah. thanking everybody for all the hard work that they do. So Yeah, we live in a beautiful city. Tiffany, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, chat with us. We're so excited to share you with our audience. And I just want to thank you for your work you've done so far in the city. And I I don't want to put any pressure on you, but I look forward to seeing to what you do in the future as well. Oh, thank you. Well, I I really do love MADE. I've, I've always loved the organization. And um, I really think that it had helped me when I was a younger designer to understand what design is. And so I appreciate this work that you guys do. And I hope that it continues for a long time. So thank you. And now, a brief conversation between Maidcast and our title sponsor, Dialogue. Here, we talk with Jill Robertson about Knistina Park in the Quarters District and how the park marries cultural identities with art, architecture, landscape, and urban planning. So my name is Jill Robertson. I am a partner at Dialogue in the Edmonton studio, and I'm a landscape architect. I have uh, been in Edmonton for coming up on eight years right now, and a lot of my work focuses on the public realm, urban design, and public engagement. So anything that makes our city better. You've been involved in many of the, uh, you know, high profile sort of really, probably really fun projects around Edmonton. But most recently, so you were involved in Kinistana Park? Yeah, so I am one of the landscape architects that worked on the design and we dialogue led phase one, which was completed in the fall of 2020. And we're working on the design for phase two right now and hopefully starting construction in the summer, the summer of 2021. I know, I know personally, I, um, I bike by that area quite a bit and I started seeing it go up and then I started seeing this like red ribbon come to life and it was like, whoa, the quarters, the quarters district has always been kind of fun in the last five years to see what happens. And that was a really exciting moment for sure. So yeah, Tiffany touches on the attempt to try to marry the different cultural identities of the area, the, you know, indigenous history and the Chinese histories. Do you have much comment on that? Like, was there, was there a lot of difficulties with that? And I can tell you a little bit about the design. So Kanistana means we three in Cree. And you're right, it speaks to the Edmonton city heritage, the Chinese cultural heritage. That's the original historic Chinatown location within the quarters. And then the indigenous um, influence on the city. So the, the canopy itself is meant to represent a common thread that stitches those stories together. And it's red to reflect the Chinese culture. And then it has Tiffany's Métis beading pattern on the underside of the canopy and it travels down the side and that really references the Cree part of the story. And so they all come together through the expression of this beautiful piece of architecture in the park. Oh, that's so cool. You mentioned phase one and phase two. So during during phase one, what other 
What are some of the more predominant outside of the red ribbon features in the park that you were trying to go for? The canopy is really the big, the big move in the park, but otherwise it has a series of play mounds that are really colorful. It has a, a big wooden deck space for gathering and for seating and then a lawn. So we really imagine that in the summer, this is going to be a great place to hang out, to take your coffee from the farmer's market and come and sit in the sunshine and just enjoy being outside and, and enjoy being in the downtown. So we're really excited to see that come to life. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. You mentioned the farmer's market and it is it is like a block away or something. Uh, so how much of that factored into all of this? I think there's some natural synergy there. When we started the park design in 2016, I don't believe that the farmer's market was envisioned to move there. But now that it's there, that proximity has really started to influence our design thinking, especially in phase two. It, you know, in my head, as I'm imagining the design, I'm really seeing families and people on Saturdays hanging out in the park and relaxing. And there's going to be a lot of fun, much more family focused aspects to the phase two design that I think are going to be really exciting. So the farmer's market is definitely played into a lot of that. But also we're really building on the story and the narrative that we developed in phase one and carrying that into phase two. So what generally, what you probably not done the design yet, but what what can we expect with phase two? Is it is it much bigger scale? Is it It's smaller in its footprint, but I think it's equally packed with fun and design surprises. So there's going to be an interactive water feature that people can play in. There's a continuation of the canopy. There is a continuation of the natural play with a, a slide built into the topography. It's going to be a really fun space. And then I think also we're continuing to tell that story with the integration of Tiffany's art into the design. And then there's a huge amount of trees that are going to go into the space as well. So I think it's going to be green, but in a different way than phase one. You, you mentioned uh, a, sort of a natural slide and you mentioned before some mounds. And I really like the idea of this sort of, maybe not minimalist, but like it's a different approach to like a, a, a children's space or an, an anybody space because it's sort of meant to be interpreted. So I guess what are your, what are your thoughts on, on that type of play space where it's sort of just a mound rather than a whole swing set and, and all the other pieces? Yeah, it's a bit of a take on a naturalized playground. And I think it's really fun. I have kids and I've seen them play in this kind of space and I it, it opens up their imagination. I think you can play in a natural playground in different ways than you can in a traditional playground. And I think that we're including some elements in this space that are going to make it really fun for kids to connect and be an Im imaginative. And it, it's a bit broader in terms of the age group that it can appeal to. So I'm optimistic it's going to be a really fun space. And then because I spend a lot of time in playgrounds now, I know that it's equally important to have space for the parents to be able to sit and drink their coffee and watch their kids. So we've definitely included those spaces as well. Right. Yeah, you have to consider the entire family in spaces and not just the children. To hear more of this conversation with dialogue, follow our social media or visit joinmade.org. Special thanks on this episode to Jordan Ast. For music, mixing, and mastering. The rest of the team includes Inkit Gongle, Caitlin Schultz, Stephanie Pollock, 
and me, Cody Johnston. Maidcast is produced in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If this conversation intrigued you, head over to your favorite podcast app and show us some love. If you want to learn more about Maid, who we are, what we're up to, and how you can help us out, head over to joinmade.org.